We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Sermons with Rabbi David Seth Kirchner, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Forgetting the expense involved, if you had the choice between staying home and doing nothing for a week or going to some, when I say exotic, I really mean different place, who would choose to travel versus staying home? Raise your hand if you'd rather travel and explore something new. The majority of people in this room, me too, I love traveling. In fact, I love taking my kids to parts of the world they haven't seen. As of today, I've been to six continents. I've been to 48 states. And I hope by the, before I turn 50, which is five years from now, that I can say I've been in 50 states and in seven continents. And I love adding more places on the map that I can experience and explore. But every time I get on the, pl- on the plane, particularly when I go somewhere internationally, I get about a minute and a half of nervousness or trepidation. What happens if I land in Amsterdam or in Germany or in Paris or in London or in Poland or Bulgaria or any of the other places that I have gone and I get lost or something happens or I don't know my way around or someone takes my luggage or any of these other things. The truth is I worry for about a minute and I think to myself, okay, I have an American Express card. This is what it's for. They'll help you out. There's a consulate, that's what it's for, it will help you out, then you'll be okay. And that's part of the reason why I like taking journeys, because what it does, once you get settled into your hotel and you realize everything's gonna be okay and they have Uber in the foreign country, you realize that you really get to see the world through a new perspective. You see customs and habits. Go to Spain and watch them shut down from two in the afternoon till five of everyone's taking a siesta. Go to Israel and have someone fight with you, I mean scream at the top of their lungs over the price you're gonna pay for a talus and then when you're done, they'll invite you to their home for Shabbat dinner. Go to Poland and look at people who don't smile when they take a picture and you say to yourself, why aren't they smiling? And then you go back to pictures from three or four generations ago and they don't smile just because that's the culture of Poland. When you take a picture, you don't smile. Or go to Bulgaria, where in Bulgaria, you say no by nodding your head up and down, and you say yes by nodding your head left to right. All of these different cultures, all of these different ways of life, give us a little peephole for our insatiable curiosity to learn more about people, to learn more about places, to learn more about cultures and societies, and what makes them all tick. And for me, I love the opportunity to do that. But this happens basically on every trip. I know whether I'm going away for two days or for two weeks that what will happen is I'll get back on the airplane, I'll fly home, and somewhere between exit one and exit two on the Palisades, I will say to myself, did that even happen? Was that a dream? Did I really go away? And then you have pictures and memories to think about it. And then you walk into your house and you turn off the alarm and you start going through the mail and you see the bills and you 
put the dairy away and you realize you got no cheese and you're hungry and Rudy's is closed and all the things you want to do. And life gets back into the routine very quickly. And that's the beauty and escape of what is a vacation. But that changes dramatically if I pick up and take two suitcases with me and I go to Bulgaria or to Poland or to London or to France or to Madrid or to Portugal or to Warsaw or to Krakow, Sofia, you name it, to hundreds of places. And I don't plan on coming back. Because if you don't plan on coming back and all your mail has to be forwarded and you change your phone number, I'm speaking figuratively now, it changes the entire equation. Then you're not satiating a curiosity to learn about another society. You're about to be embraced by one. And that thought can be overwhelming. It's an important reminder to us of what makes Abraham so unique and so special in the Jewish canon and society. What makes him so special and so unique is not different than what happened to Noah or what happened to Adam, but what makes him unique is that he is the first person who chooses to journey. You see, Adam and Eve have to journey also, but that's because of their sin that they made and then they are banished out of the Garden of Eden. So they have to move. Noah is chosen by God to get on the ark and to accumulate all of the animals so that they will be saved. But Abraham chooses to make this journey and continue in his father's footsteps. And as a result of that, he is rewarded. Now, what I love about that is twofold. One, amongst the Jewish people, we never stopped moving from that moment forward. That's probably why, as a people, we have a disproportionate amount of ADD. It's probably, as a people, why we've never had a moment of arrival. Think about the end of Deuteronomy. We've all read it before. It closes with this beautiful story of Moses walking into the promised land, putting up a flag and saying, we made it, we're here, right? Wrong. Moses doesn't even make it to the promised land. And the book concludes without a moment of arrival. There's no time in the history of the Jewish people that demarcates a sense of arrival. Some could argue it happened in 1948, others in 1967, but there are just as many people who argue those are not moments of arrival. We're still not there yet. That's telling us that we are continually on a sense of a journey that has yet to end. It started with Abraham and we inherit it today. So what's the benefit of a journey? What's the benefit of a vacation? What's the benefit of leaving that which we know and we are familiar with and going to something different? Well, one thing is you see the world through a new lens. You see everything through a new perspective. It actually says in the Talmud, in Masechet Rosh Hashanah, that when you change your physical place in life, you change your destiny. You change what your fortune can be. And that sometimes you are responsible to move physically in order to see things from a different perspective. That's one of the reasons why in the text, the words lech lecha are used. In Hebrew, we could just say biblically or even in modern times, lech, which is the tzivui, it's a command, it's imperative, and it can mean go. Why say lech lecha? Why this doubling up? And the Zohar gives a beautiful answer. 
The Zohar says, because Abraham wasn't only moving physically, he was moving emotionally. And it goes on to say that in order to move spiritually or emotionally, you have to move physically. So here's a random law for you. Most people don't know this law. I don't know if you do or if you even consider keeping it. But people who come to Shabbat on a regular basis, of which we have anywhere between 100 and 150 people who come every Shabbat, give or take, they're regulars. They all have what's called a makom kavua. They all sit in the same spot. Robert Schachter sits there every Shabbat he's here. Michael New sits there when he's there. Erno's all over the place, he doesn't count. But Marcy Whitman always sits in that spot, okay? Barry Zingler always sits there. Herman Lieberman always sits there. Many again always sits there. I can be here for 20 minutes mentioning all the people where they sit. They have a makom kavua. They have an established seat of where they are. But if God forbid one of the people in their lives who's part of their immediate family that they would mourn for, like a sibling, a spouse, a parent, God forbid, a child, if one of those people died, they are required for the term of their mourning to move their physical location. They're supposed to move their spot in the shul. So when I was a mourner mourning for my father and I always sit in that seat, we had a chair brought in for that whole year and I sat on a chair just to demarcate that we don't sit in the same spot. We're supposed to see the world from a different place. So why would we do that as mourners? It doesn't make sense. It's a time when you need the most comfort. It's a time when you need to be embraced the most by that which is comfortable to you. And the answer is, you're in a place where you can't have the same old conversation with God when you are mourning. So in order to begin a new conversation with God and to distinguish that level of relationship, you gotta change physically in order to change spiritually. So for that entire duration of your morning, whether it's 30 days or a year, you move your physical space. Now, what's amazing to notice is that in the professional for-profit world, all of the Fortune 100 companies do some version of this. The idea is called getting out of your bubble. And all of us are in bubbles. You can call it a bubble, I can call it an echo chamber, it's all the same thing. Now we live in bubbles on Facebook and Instagram where we yell into rooms with people who are sharing the same kinds of things and only wanna hear it and occasionally we go up to another bubble and we yell something thinking they'll hear it but we don't even stay to see the reverberation. We live in bubbles in the way that we run our lives, me as a rabbi in our synagogue for what our synagogue does, who the people are, what people like, what they don't like, all these other kinds of things. And we live in these silos, these bubbles. We don't get out of our bubbles. But whether I'm traveling or for work, I were mandated, imagine, what they're doing in the corporate world, which is forcing people to get out of their workspace and go to a different space. Imagine if you work for a consulting group like Accenture, and Accenture encouraged all of their employees to spend a week going to McKinsey or to Bain to see how other groups do it. Could you imagine? Imagine if you work for Delta Airlines and they encouraged all their pilots and flight attendants and all their people who work in baggage to spend two weeks spending time with how Southwest runs their corporation. Imagine if every rabbi, and I'm not, I'm not making a pitch for this, I would do that with the board if I wanted to, don't worry, but imagine if every rabbi and cantor 
We're told to take three Shabbatot, not off, but to pick different synagogues around the country and to just celebrate Shabbat as a congregant there with the sole purpose of getting out of your bubble, with the sole purpose of learning what other people are doing and see what best practices are, see what we can learn from and see how we can grow. In essence, that's what Abraham did and that's why he was chosen by God in my estimation because he didn't stay complacent. He moved. He got out of that which was comfortable for him, and God underlines that. Leave your land, your father's land, your birth land, to a land I'm going to show you. God is highlighting the fact that all of this stuff is comfortable for you. Get out of your bubble. Go somewhere else. See the world from a new perspective. And even as soon as he gets to Israel, what does he do? The first thing he does when he gets to Israel, there's a famine. He leaves. He goes to Egypt. He can't stay still. And even in Egypt, he takes some of the cultures and practices that he followed in Haran and tries to make them applicable to life in Egypt, which is not the culture in Egypt. And then he gets to Israel and sees what the culture is there. When you have different societies, some like Sodom Amorah doing things that he thinks are immoral and wrong. It's critical for all of us to get out of that space and that comfort zone. I want to tell you what I did last Sunday through Tuesday. I was at a conference in Baltimore, the Pearlstone Retreat Center, and I was there in a program called The Conversation. It was sponsored by the Jewish Week, and they picked about 50-plus Jewish thought leaders, of which I was blessed to be in this year's cohort, from all over North America, and people from all stripes and backgrounds. Some are connected to the Jewish community in a lay capacity. Some are in a professional capacity. Some have roles where they are heads of organizations. Some have roles where they are not the heads but engaged in conversations. There were people from the political left and the political right, from the religious hard right and the religious soft left. Everything in between. The founder of J-Stripe, J-Swipe rather, the dating site, who is really invested for talking about Judaism for millennials was there. There was a woman who was there who has founded a organization called Sacred Spaces, which deals with women who are victims of trauma and abuse and dealing with abuse in our community and how do we announce these things and how do we advocate for awareness and teach our children in particular how to be sensitive to this and community leaders and everything else in the middle that you can imagine. And really what they were doing more than anything else, and all we did, by the way, was we had unstructured conversation, unstructured, for an hour and a half at four different moments throughout the, the two-day retreat about what is our concern and worries for the future of the Jewish world. For some people, it was intermarriage. For other people, it was the cost of being Jewish. For some people, it was the divide politically in our country. For others, it was the divide happening in Israel. For others, it's the divide between America and Israel. A whole host of things. But what it did for me, and I think it did for all of the 50 other people who were part of this conversation was, it got us out of our bubble. What I struggle with and deal with every day in close to New Jersey is not with my colleague who's a co congregational rabbi in Los Angeles is dealing with every day. But we're still part of the same conservative movement. And what I'm dealing with every day is not what the founder of J-Swipe who's dealing with millennials every day is dealing with and challenged by and what keeps them up at night. And the notion of sacred spaces is an amazing institution of which I knew nothing about before I got there and now know everything 
know very little of what there is to know. I do not know everything about, but have started to begin to quench that curiosity and will continue in that process. And all it did, which is the most important thing for all of us, which these Fortune 100 companies are ahead of the curve on, but we're not in the Jewish world, is it got us out of our bubble. You've got to get out of your bubble in life because otherwise you just stay in the same place and you can't grow. And the reason why we have always achieved and succeeded is because we are continually by choice or by force made to leave our bubble. And by leaving our bubble like Abraham did, like I can and like you did and will, is an opportunity for every single one of us to get out of that which is comfortable and to see something new. And yeah, maybe we'll return to the comfortable. It feels great after those two-day retreats when I sit in my chair in my office and go back to the emails and know where everything is. But let me tell you, when you sit at that desk with the information you have begun to absorb and you see the process that's now happening of taking in all those other pieces, it affects everything you begin to do forward. And it makes my rabbinate more robust. It makes the millennial's job more robust. It makes the person in sacred spaces more robust. It makes the congregational rabbi in Los Angeles more robust and looking at the complexities and the layers and stripes of what it is to be part of the Jewish world. This does not live only for us. It lives in every world. We have this reluctance to get out of our bubble because our bubble is safe and comfortable. It's like getting into that lazy boy chair that knows the exact contours of your body when you sit in it. But you got to get out of it. Because when you get out of it, that's where the magic happens. Let me tell you one other group that fails at this miserably. Politicians. Politicians love their bubble. And the average politician will work in two bubbles and ignore a third. David Gergen talks about this, who's a political strategist. He's worked in different administrations. He said there's something called the 20-60-20 rule when it comes to politics. 20% of the people are going to vote for you no matter what if you're a particular politician. No matter what you do, no matter how you do, whatever you are, because of the label you wear, they're going to vote for you. And 20% of the people, no matter what you do or no matter what you say, they're not voting for you no matter what. So you got 20% that are going to vote for you, 20% that aren't going to vote for you, no matter what. And 60% is undecided. And guess what most politicians do? And this is not a dig about a political dig. I got plenty of those to do later. But Donald Trump does this more than anyone else I've ever seen in the political world. But so does everyone else. And that is they volley. They spend 20% of their time with that base of which they can do no wrong and say no wrong. And they get all pumped up and then they try and go to people on the far side and think that they are invincible. And in doing so, they're going to convince them of everything they got right and everything they're going to make them consider. And then they have zero success. And they pop a big needle into that balloon in that bubble. They get deflated. And the only thing that's the bomb for the deflation is going back to the 20%. And then what ends up happening? They go back and forth and back and forth. They get inflated, deflated, inflated, deflated. And the whole time, the 60% is forgotten about. How many rabbis in my world would think about their synagogue and the synagogue down the street and ignore the greater Jewish community and its needs? How many organizations would think about themselves and maybe their competitor around the corner, but not what the community as a whole is thirsty for? 
We gotta get out of our place of comfort. We've gotta move. And no one does that better than Abraham. I'm gonna close with the story that I told during my senior sermon almost 20 years ago when I was graduating rabbinical school. I've told it here since, and hopefully you've all forgotten it. It's a story of when I first started dating my wife. And we were going out for a few weeks, maybe a few months, and we were just madly in love with one another, and there was nothing the other one could do or say that would bring us down. It was just the happiest time in our lives. And one day I decided on a particular date we're gonna go to like a carnival, like an amusement park. And I love amusement parks. I love roller coasters. I love things that go around really fast, up and down. I love that stuff. Why? I don't like to sit still. I just love it. And right when we're about to walk in, my wife finally works up the courage and breaks the news to me that I have been dreading, which is I hate amusement parks. I hate rides. Sitting there, I'm looking at her. I'm totally in love, but I also love amusement parks. What am I going to do here? I said, you don't like roller coasters? Would you try it? She goes, no, won't even try it. I said, would you go on the spinning cups? Absolutely not, not gonna happen. I'll watch you go. Oh, that's fun, thank you very much. So I said, is there anything you'll go on? She said, yeah. Got excited, what was it? She said, the Ferris wheel. Now the stupidest ride in the history of amusement parks is the Ferris wheel. There's no purpose to a Ferris wheel. There's no excitement to a Ferris wheel. It goes about three miles per hour in a circle. And it is just boring and silly. So there I am on the Ferris wheel with my girlfriend who later becomes my fiance and wife and I'm trying to be excited like, wow, this is great. Look how high we are. Look how fast we're going, right? There are people in Boca that move faster than this. So we're up there and I was, you know, basically hitting my, my limb and I said, honey, this is, this is just terrible. This is so boring. It's just a circle. It just goes around and around and around. Nothing changes. And she goes, yeah, nothing changes for us, but everything around you is changing. And she was right. Everything around us changes, but if we don't get out of our bubble to see it, to appreciate it, to learn from it, we're never gonna grow. Because Abraham did that, it led us to the future that we have continued to journey on today. And if you and I can do that in our professional worlds, in our personal worlds, in our spiritual worlds, it's gonna ripen our opportunity for growth, for connection, and for meaning, and especially for feeling chosen by God, just like Abraham was. May we all get out of our bubble, and in doing so, may we get a little closer to God in the process. Amen.